Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you from ASM Technologies. Across the series, we're looking at emerging trends and tech within the industry with key speakers, futurists and business leaders from across the globe. In this episode, ASM Technologies' Ian Tomkinson and Stephen Dale are joined by Matthew Griffin, the founder and CEO of the World Futures Forum and the 311 Institute. Matthew is regularly featured in the global media, including the BBC, CNBC, Bloomberg, Discovery, Viacom and Wired, and is recognised as one of the world's foremost futurists who helps governments and investors lead an inclusive, sustainable future. Matthew shares his experience, talking through the challenges our industry faces with climate change, how businesses need to adapt, and how emerging tech can help bring about solutions to a climate crisis. All of that to come on ASM Connected. Welcome to the ASM Connected podcast, Matt. Thank you, guys. It's going to be really interesting talking through this because you'll have a great understanding of our audience and particularly the, the channel. But Steve, I'll pass you over to you to do a bit of an overview. Yeah, I think uh, we'll stick to our usual theme. We like to talk about emerging technology. Innovation is a key part of all of our conversations and building in a bit of agility as well. And um, so... I suppose to uh, further add to that introduction, like many of us, you started out with the channel background and it's a really interesting backstory from that early days of IT distribution uh, and then moving into that reseller SI background. How did you become a globally recognised futurist advising governments and organisations like the UN on future technologies? Uh, so as I sort of tend to say to a lot of people, when you actually have a look on the path from sort of where you were to where you are, there's no straight line. Everything is a zigzag. I remember sort of the days working at MicroP, basically under uh, a couple of sales directors who are still there. But I remember having to do 120 calls a day. So on the one hand, when I have a look at my distribution background, it actually really set me up for having conversations with people. But in addition to that, just kind of picking up the phone. So I then left there, went to EMC, went on to IBM. Um, Now, when you have a look at the vast majority of system integrators, and it's not just system integrators, we can extend this out to other organizations as well. Every organization that they sell to cares about three things, reduce cost, reduce risk, and grow revenues. Now, from a system integrator perspective, you know whether it's the likes of Dell, HP, whether it's Tata, whether it's TCS, whether it's IBM, Accenture, et cetera, et cetera, the vast majority of organizations are very good at addressing those first two. You know, so reduce risk and reduce cost. And that's typically you know, cloud, virtualization. It's all the things basically that we're, we're talking about today. So digitization, so on and so forth. When it comes to grow, though, that's a very, very different story. So while some organizations can see the short-term future, they don't necessarily know what it actually means for them. They struggle to quantify it and really understand what the impact of that short-term future is going to have on their top and bottom line. But when we start having a look at the medium and longer-term futures, everything starts getting fuzzy. There was one company that I worked for in particular that when they started seeing the growth of cloud, everyone sort of came to them and said, look, cloud is becoming a thing. And as an operating, as a as an IT model, as an operating model, basically, it looks like it will be the future. And they kind of heard that message, but didn't really take it on board and then got body slammed by AWS and then obviously body slammed again, basically by Microsoft with Azure and so on and so forth. So within IBM, I actually help different organizations and different C-suites, both within the company and also within IBM's enterprise accounts, see the future. 
Because again, if you're an IBMer and you're sitting down next to somebody from HP in front of a CFO and the CFO is saying, okay, so why you? You know, both HP and IBM are going to be able to say, well, as giant system integrators, we can help eliminate $25 million worth of cost from your operations by doing X, Y, and Z. And we can de-risk your business by selling you this type of business continuity solution, for example. It's all kind of samey. What I've always traditionally found is the vast majority of C-suite, they want to know what they don't know, but they also want to know how you can actually align their business for growth, You know, particularly in a world that's changing faster than ever before. And seeing around or over that basically horizon is difficult, but it's not actually impossible. And when you actually have conversations with CEOs, and I increasingly have conversations with ministers, prime ministers, all of the G20, they really want to understand how they're going to drive that top line. And there are so many threats to people's businesses today that are actually opportunities that increasingly there are lots and lots of opportunities for those incumbents to change the status quo. And it doesn't matter what industry you're in, but you know, everything's being disrupted and every disruption is an opportunity if you know basically how to tackle it, leverage it and everything else. And then ultimately, once you have that that vision of the future, it comes down to, okay, this is the vision of the future. What technology do I need to buy? You know, what servers, you know, what cloud provider do I need to work with? What DevOps team do I need to hire? You know, whatever it happens to be. And so from my own particular perspective, um, I went from sort of A to B um, by reputation. And everything that I've actually done has been by word of mouth, which ironically, going back to my micro P days, means that I've never really needed to do any cold calling. Which is uh, fascinating. But in terms of that types of customer that you were advising at IBM, I suppose that came down off the back that were they not pushing for that longer term view as well? And I think uh, you were in that sort of public safety team advising like the security services, I believe. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So there, there's things I can talk about, things I can't quite talk about. But for example, if you have a look at you know what we call PSNS, public safety and national security businesses. So this is kind of the five eyes. So this is GCHQ, the CIA, NSA, MI five and my six, those kinds of guys. Ultimately, from a, should we say, business perspective, they don't just want to be level pegging with their competitors where you can guess who their competitors are. They want to be one to two generations ahead. So within those particular environments, I created something called the Blue Sky Forum. So the Blue Sky Forum was essentially a forum that allowed different stakeholders and shareholders to come together to discuss really the art of the possible. So things that were actually coming down the line. So uh, when you have a look at encryption, for example, particularly within the national security space, uh, we have quantum computers coming through. Um, When we get to the point where we have a thousand qubit quantum computer, then really we believe based on analysis, we should be able to crack 4,096 bit encryption in under eight hours. And obviously, when you look at AES 256-bit encryption, it's kind of a couple of minutes. So from a national security perspective, they really wanted to see beyond the horizon because actually it made a difference on the ground as to whether or not they spotted different terrorist threats, attacks, different serious organized crime groups doing whatever they, they sort of get up to. And very, very few people were having those debates with them or discussions, even presenting information that allowed them to get a particular point of view. Might as well stick some emerging technology in this one. When you actually have a look at IARPA, which is the the US intelligence equivalent of DARPA, 
they are now developing molecular information systems. So molecular information systems are a type of polymer-based computer that will allow you to pack an exascale-sized data center, like the ones the NSA have, like Google, you know, the sort of usual uh, hyperscale incumbents, into something the size of your office desk. Even sort of bring it to a slightly more commercial level, Microsoft, under the Azure platform, have been working with a, a a synthetic DNA company called Twist Bioscience, to try to develop DNA storage as a service. Because when you have a look at the density of DNA, you can pack 213 petabytes of information onto a single gram of DNA. You could fit all the world's information into a shoebox of DNA. And bearing in mind that as, as IDC, as I remember from my old storage days, where you always talk about this data tsunami, you know, we go from exascale to zeta scale, et cetera, et cetera. We need new storage technologies. So uh, increasingly, some of these previously science fiction-like storage technologies, like DNA storage as a service, are now starting to come through. But from a size and scale perspective, some of these DNA storage systems are the size of a bus. They've got relatively slow read-write. But you can compare these things to the sort of 1960s, 1970s IBM tape drives. Uh, you know, those big spinning wheels that we sort of see in, in archive footage. And inevitably, over time, these technologies will get faster. Microsoft have created a file system for DNA storage as well. So they're getting quite serious about this. But in time, will you be writing all of your personal information as well as saving all of your uh, your your important cat gifts to DNA as opposed to solid state or hard drives or tape if you're using something like Amazon's Glacier system, increasingly likely. Yeah, I love hearing those um, disruptor stories, Matt, and uh, the disruptors do seem to continue to take us by surprise, don't they? So the technology that you're talking about and it coming out of sort of central government, top secret type, all the fascinating stuff, I'm really interested to see how we can sort of start to utilise some of that technology to tackle the environmental problems Decarbonisation seems to be the phrase that um, we're talking to customers about at the moment, but it's it's on the agenda for most businesses, as it has been for technology companies. But obviously, we're not just consumers of energy and producers of waste. But I think the world's almost looking to the technology sector now to help solve the problem and not just be our little part of the problem or solution. So how is this technology you're talking about going to be applied to help with that big picture issue? Okay, so so when we have a look at trying to solve, for example, the global climate crisis, which is leading to extreme weather events that over the past sort of 20 years have increased in number by over 600%. So just to put the extreme weather into context, since the year 2000, We've seen 1.23 million people killed by extreme weather. We've seen 4.6 billion people on the planet affected in some way by extreme weather, whether it's you know floods, whether it's heat waves, for example, as we've actually seen across Europe and, the North, and North America. And from a damage perspective and from an insurance perspective, insurers have now paid out over $2.93 trillion. So when we actually have a look at trying to solve the big issue that is climate change, bearing in mind it also has an impact on the oceans. So for example, when you have a look at oceanic warming, the equivalent of five nuclear bombs worth of heat and energy is going into the world's oceans every second, which leads to increases in sea level rises. These are stories within stories and all this kind of thing. But sort of bring it back to the point, 
Today, we already have the technologies that we need to eliminate 70%, at least 70% of all global greenhouse gas emissions, particularly CO2. So when we start looking at these as a timeline, the first thing that we can actually do is use artificial intelligence. So a couple of years ago, Google's DeepMind unit, which is an artificial intelligence unit based in the UK, uh, applied their deep learning system to a hyperscale data center, to one of Google's hyperscale data centers. And I remember having this conversation basically with Lloyds Bank, uh, ironically, basically when I was uh, at said its system integrator. So in this particular example, Google's artificial intelligence was, should we say, inserted into one of their hyperscale data centers to try to learn the patterns of energy use within the data center. After a two-week period, it managed to cut the energy consumption of that data center by 20%, which in Google's terms, providing I remember my numbers correctly, reduced their electricity bill by about 20 million, and if applied to their global estate, would reduce their electricity bills by $250 million, which then ironically, bearing in mind they bought uh, DeepMind for about 600 million, pretty much paying for itself right there. So on the one hand, we can use we can increasingly use artificial intelligence with the Internet of Things, 4G, 5G, and all these other sort of different connected technologies and digital technologies to optimize energy consumption, whether it's for buildings, whether it's for data centers, and so on and so forth. That's a relatively quick win that companies can do right now. However, you know, when we actually have a look at decarbonizing, so we'll start with, let's say we start with energy. Around 90% of all greenhouse gas emissions basically come from energy generation, and a bunch more come from concrete manufacture, that sort of stuff. Today, from an energy generation perspective, we have over 1 trillion watts of renewable energy installed. Energy Renewable energy generation costs are almost hitting zero. So solar power is now the cheapest form of electricity in over 60 countries. That's an unsubsidized cost. So when we actually have a look at the technologies that we have today, basically to switch basically energy generation from fossil fuels, basically to more sustainable and green sources, um, we're doing it on the one hand, we're actually doing an increasingly good job. But when we actually have a look at the future of solar, for example, if you go off today and you buy a commercial solar panel, it's going to be about 17 to 20% energy efficient. We have a pathway, and we actually have these in the labs. We have a pathway to creating solar panels and solar concentrators that are 132% energy efficient. So even when we have a look at just the solar industry, and I'll explain this one a little bit. So with a traditional silicon solar panel, we can get to an energy efficiency of about 25 to 28%. With a perscovite solar panel, we can get to an energy efficiency of about 30 to 35%. These are the upper, upper ends. If we put graphene over that perscovite panel, then we can generate electricity using that panel when it rains and when it snows. If I use genetically engineered bacteria, as we have in China, and I put genetically engineered bacteria into a solar panel, I can get to 50% energy efficiency. Bearing in mind that the US Department of Energy have already prototyped solar panels, basically, that are 48% efficient, pushing the barrier further. Because we have bacteria in solar panels, I can generate electricity when it's cloudy. If I use carbon nanotubes that recapture the heat in the solar panel, I can push the solar panels to 80% energy energy efficiency. Um, But I referred to an energy efficiency of 132%. So using 3D printing, 
and using nanophotonic materials, which can capture the very small wavelengths of light, I can create a solar panel out of a material called black silicon, which allows me to generate electricity irrespective of the weather. I can generate electricity from ambient light, and I can generate electricity from moonlight, which then means I can wean the world off grid-scale storage. These technologies and prototypes already exist today, but they take time to commercialize, mature, get to the right price points. You know, it takes time basically to scale up manufacturing and all that sort of stuff. So the fundamental sort of upshot of all of this is that even if you just have a look at solar, fossil fuels are dead. In addition to that, when we actually have a look at how we're applying solar today, um, you can go to companies like Lightyear One, Hyundai and Toyota, and you can buy a, power, a, a solar powered car that never needs plugging in. So when we have a look at electric vehicles with their huge queen sized mattress worth of lithium ion batteries, we have a way to eliminate all of those batteries. So on the one hand, we can use flexible and spray on photovoltaic materials where the spray-on photovoltaic materials, not really panels, but materials, were actually designed by creative artificial intelligences rather than scientists. We have a way to wirelessly power those electric vehicles or electrical systems. If we have a look at Lamborghini, for example, Lamborghini of a little while ago tag-teamed with MIT. So we can create something called a structural battery where the product's shell in this case, the Lamborghini's chassis is actually the battery because we can infuse carbon fiber with carbon nanotubes again. So now we get rid of lithium ion batteries. When we have a look at the energy sector, there is so much going on. It's crazy. We've got biofuels. We can grow biofuels basically in, in the Pacific Ocean four times faster with a four times greater yield than any type of crop that we can grow on land, bearing in mind that biofuels from crops basically then sort of stirs a lot of debate because essentially we're feeding into famine. And you know, outside of anything else, you know, when we start having a look at agriculture, so a lot of global greenhouse gas emissions, both methane and carbon dioxide, actually come from agriculture. About 30% of all global greenhouse gas emissions basically come from agriculture. About another 20 to 30 basically come from transportation, which is increasingly being electrified using some of the technologies I've talked about. But when we actually have a look at agriculture, we now have technologies, and we've had them for quite a while, to be fair, that allow us to grow crops without any farmland. Because, again, giving some examples, if you're in the UK, Ocado basically have recently invested £17 million basically in vertical farms. Jeff Bezos has invested $250 million in vertical farms, in his case, in a company called Plenty. What we can do is we can take a traditional Walmart warehouse, Amazon warehouse, or Ocado warehouse, or any warehouse, and we can grow crops. And I'm going to pull this one in here. We can grow crops using 99% less regular water, 100% less herbicides and chemicals, um, and using and, and that are zero uh, net zero energy because you can put solar panels on top of them. But we can grow eight times the amount of organic crops in a vertical warehouse than we can in the same amount of land for a traditional farm. Now, in addition to that, one of the things that we face in the future basically are water wars. So if I use something called a direct air capture system that draws moisture out of the air, condenses it, and again, we have uh, the US military, we have General Electric, for example, who are creating these. 
I can 3D print a heat exchanger that generates 500 litres worth of fresh water every day. I feed that into my vertical farm. And now what I have is I have a vertical, a way to grow crops that uses 100% less potable water than a traditional farm. 100% less pesticides, chemicals, herbicides, and everything else. And generates eight times the yields that are organic, where crops are grown for flavor as opposed to transportation. We eliminate all the food miles because the crops are grown in your local town. So McDonald's are embracing these types of vertical farms. Walmart, you know, and a whole variety of other organizations are as well. Now, that's sort of growing crops out of the way. When we think about one of the greatest sources of methane, it's cows, cattle. So again, um, I can take a cell from a chicken's feather. This is via a company called Just. I can take that cell from a feather, put that chicken cell into a bioreactor and grow it in a, in a specially designed cellular culture. And I now have any type of meat that I like. So I have chicken nuggets. If I take a cell from a cow, I have Wagyu beef or I have fillet steak, I have duck, I have chicken, I have turkey. If I take the cell from a zebra or a panda, I can have a panda burger without actually having to kill a panda. Again, from an ex talking about exponential technologies and you know this, this sort of cost performance increase over time, about six years ago, Eric Schmidt of Google bought a clean lab, clean meat burger that was grown in a lab and he bought it for $1.5 million. So that's about $6 million per pound, seven years ago. Last year, the cost per pound of meat grown in this way, and it's meat, it's not plant-based, it's meat, literally meat. So we replicate what goes on inside of an animal, growing tissue and meat, just in a bioreactor. The cost is now $363. University College of London basically think that they have a way to create synthetic proteins, which will actually get that cost down to between five to $15 per pound. The US FDA have approved the sale of clean meat in Walmart. In Singapore, they have cleared the sale of lab-grown chicken nuggets. So you can walk into a, a restaurant in Singapore and actually eat this. And the people who are eating these things say that they are tastier than anything else that they've had. China has, about a year and a half ago, bought $300 million worth, basically, of both the technology as well as clean meat from Israel. So what you have here is we have new technologies that are fundamentally changing how we produce food and fundamentally changing our relationship with food. Uh, so we have a way to grow crops without having to burn the Amazon rainforest, which we can then rewild. We also have a way to feed a growing middle-class population with high-quality protein without ever having to kill a single animal, which then solves the United Nation, one of the United Nations' biggest challenges in 2050 of how do you feed 11 billion people. But swinging this back to climate change and decarbonization, I've just decarbonized 30% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, I've eliminated. You start combining that with the electrification of the transportation industry, and suddenly we're at about 60-ish percent. Now, when I start using 
renewable technologies to tackle steel and aluminium smelting, so heavy industry. I can use hydrogen and or solar ovens, and I can replace the fossil fuels that are used to create steel and aluminium. So recently, uh, Volvo bought the world's first fossil-free green steel, and that represents about another 10% of of emissions. Uh, When we have a look at concrete, we have a way to replace potash in concrete, as well as create something called green concrete, which actually eliminates another 10% of greenhouse gas emissions. And in addition to that, I have a way to 3D print buildings without the need for concrete anyway. So I can 3D print a, a building using a type of recycled plastic or whatever it happens to be. Yesterday, I was actually at the Port of Hamburg and um, we were talking about 3D printing cargo ships. And uh, a company basically showed me that uh, a ship that they'd actually 3D printed, but that one was actually carbon negative because the materials that they'd actually used in that case had sucked carbon dioxide out of the air captured it, and then they printed the boat using that material. So when we have a look at construction, construction's being disrupted in all manner of ways. Um, so we've got the technologies that we need today. I mean, and but then some of the emerging technologies are also the problem. If you look at blockchain, blockchain's energy consumption is through the roof, which is where we get into conversations about proof of work versus proof of authority where proof of authority uses sort of 98% less electricity. We've also got the Ethereum hard fork, which now uses about 90% less electricity than traditional sort of, you know, blockchain mining. And then when we have a look at artificial intelligence, the increase in the development of artificial intelligence models, particularly deep learning models that now have typically trillions of parameters, especially when you have a look at natural language processing models like GPT-3, Google and Microsoft, as well as Baidu's own uh, NLP models, the energy consumption is off the charts. Um, So from that perspective, again, the US military are developing what we call shallow neural networks. And to put it into context, we've recently used a shallow neural network just with 19 nodes to control a fully autonomous vehicle. Whereas normally the deep learning networks used to control an autonomous vehicle basically would be in in their millions. So there's lots of things. And then even when we actually have a look at GPUs, you know, everyone that's designing artificial intelligence models today will be familiar with NVIDIA GPUs. However, companies like BMW and Dell basically have been investing in organizations like GraphCore. So GraphCore create a technology, and they're based out of Bristol. They create a technology called a intelligence processing unit, which the founder of ARM has called the next ARM. And IPUs can train machine learning models 100 times faster than NVIDIA's best GPUs, but for 100 100 times less power. So, you know, new technologies take away sometimes, but they also sort of give back. So as I say, you know, we already have a lot of the technologies that we need today to decarbonize the vast majority of anthropogenic carbon. That definitely answers the question, Matt. So many technologies, but what I like about that is it's optimistic. You know, when you hear everybody telling the sort of environmental problem story in the news day to day, it's doom and gloom. They talk about the problems, but not necessarily the solutions. One of the things it's made me think about is obviously the technology industry, it's got all this innovation. 
which is fantastic, and you, you've just detailed it for us, is our industry and the industries that we're working with as well, are they agile enough to be able to take advantage of this innovation quickly enough to sort of make that impact now rather than too far into the future? Uh, so it's a great question. So typically we can break organisations into two if we're sort of being really crude about it. So on the one hand, you have organizations whose products, services, and operations are predominantly digital, in which case you can actually make quite a rapid impact, where rapid is, depending on the particular industry they're in, where rapid is a couple of weeks to maybe a couple of years. And then you've got asset-heavy industries like manufacturing, for example, energy, transportation, infrastructure, you know, I think airports, all that kind of stuff. It's much more difficult, from my experience, for them to actually embrace some of these technologies. Because, for example, if you're building an airport, or if you built an airport, say, 20 years ago, the cost of retrofitting it so that it is a carbon neutral or a passive airport basically is just staggeringly large. So you're not going to bother. However, when it comes to building your next airport, you will build that airport with, should we say, carbon neutral in mind. So it very much does, it very much does depend on the, type of, on the type of customer. But overall, everyone can actually make an impact because when we have a look at, for example, energy consumption, everyone can change energy suppliers. And everyone knows you know, who their energy suppliers are. I mean, if you have a look at Apple and you have a look at Google and Microsoft, I'm going to come to Microsoft in a minute because they've got an interesting one. When you have a look at companies like Apple and Google, you know, they've managed to move all of their energy consumption to 100% renewable. So you could be the most lethargic business or industry on the planet. And provided you aren't, say, the airline industry, you could move your energy consumption and your energy supplies basically to renewable. Now, the reason basically why I sort of left Microsoft aside for a little while is when you have a look at a lot of the tech giants, the vast majority of them are making net zero pledges, you know, so they they are aiming to be carbon neutral by circa 2030, you know, Amazon as well, basically with Bezos. Microsoft is one of the very few organizations. In fact, they're only one of two that has done this. So here's an odd story. So Microsoft basically have pledged to extract all of the carbon that they have emitted, both directly and indirectly, since they were founded in 1975 by the year, I think it's 2040. So Microsoft haven't only made a pledge to be net zero by 2030, they are going to reclaim all of the carbon that they've pushed into the atmosphere under their sort of 2040 plan. And they've also created a billion dollar climate change fund, which kind of actually helps them. But actually, it's always nice to see some money flowing into something good for a change. The only other entity that has a huge amount of progress on becoming carbon negative, where they actually suck more carbon out of the atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera, than they put into it, is Bhutan. So a lot of people probably don't know this, because uh, I didn't until recently. 70% of Bhutan is covered in forests. But in 2009, at the UN General Assembly, they decided to abandon capitalism and the quest for economic growth at the expense of the environment. And they are the only country in the world that is carbon negative. The, aren't they on the global happiness scale? Didn't they abandon sort of GDP for global happiness? I, lo I love yeah, that. So, yeah, so they've, yeah, they've got happiness indexes, which are actually linked to the environment and all kinds of things, which then brings you to this question. 
and this is this is where we now see a tipping point, a societal level tipping point. When you have when you do surveys, particularly of younger generations, and you ask them whether or not they support traditional capitalism, depending on the country that those individuals live in, only between six and forty-two percent of younger generations are actually for traditional capitalism. And when I say traditional capitalism, when you have a look at what traditional capitalism really is about, it's about maximizing the profit that your business creates and the dividends and all that sort of stuff for your shareholders, really at the expense of the environment, your workers, the communities that you live within and all that sort of stuff. So traditional capitalism, and Jamie Dimon, basically, with the the New York Business Round Council, has actually said this as well. Traditional capitalism is increasingly seen as probably the biggest threat to the planet Earth because it, even in the European Union's case, if you are polluting today in the European Union, it will cost you $50 for every ton of carbon that you push into the atmosphere. If I say to you, well, look, I think you should be a an environmentally responsible business, and I think that you should actually take a ton of carbon out of the air and, you know, capture it underground, for example. So capture CCS, uh, so carbon capture and storage solutions. That will cost you $110. Now, how many organizations and how many CEOs are going to go to their shareholders and go, so, you know, I've got a great idea. What we're going to do is we're going to be, uh, we're going to focus on carbon Carbon uh, zero or net zero. So I'm going to be spending $110 to suck a ton of carbon dioxide out of the air and shove it underground. The shareholders go, well, hang on. Um, so it's costing you $50 to pollute. So you want to spend $60 extra to not pollute. What happens to your profit in that case? Oh, well, it goes down. Well, what happens to our dividends in that case? Well, they go down. Well, don't do it. You're stupid. You know, if you do it, we're going to get you off the board. So what we've seen, and this is sort of a slight shift now that I'm seeing uh, around the world, we're increasingly seeing the shift from what we call traditional capitalism that alienates people, that treats people basically like commodities. You know, if you have a look at a lot of warehouse workers, you know, Uber drivers, for example, have been uh, managed and fired by artificial intelligence, very similar basically with Amazon workers as well. When you have a look at the move from traditional capitalism to ethical capitalism, basically where ethical capitalism is a model based on what we call uh, the economics of mutuality, that tries to ensure that all of the stakeholders within a business actually benefits. So it's typically finance benefits, people benefit, community benefits, environment benefits. This was something that was sort of put together originally by Mars, but in about 2010. On the one hand, we're starting to see the growth of ethical capitalism. But in addition to that, when you have a look at ESG investing, so environment, sustainability and governance uh, investing, over 30% of all global assets under management are now ethical or ESG-based investments. So organizations like Legal and General, BlackRock, uh, Citigroup, they are investing literally trillions of dollars in businesses that are able to demonstrate that they take CSR and ESG seriously and actually act on it. And going back to sort of Jamie Dimon and the story, uh, in 2019, Jamie Dimon sat down with over 250 of the Fortune 250's CEOs and sort of boards and all that kind of stuff. 
In 2019, 181 of the Fortune 250 decided to reject a policy that had been implemented in the 1990s called shareholder primacy. The shareholder primacy policy is the policy that puts shareholders first over everything else. So Jamie Dimon and the New York Business Council, which also included Jeff Bezos, decided that they would no longer put shareholder interests first. They would actually put the interests of ESG, the community, the world, and all this sort of stuff first. And from an investor's perspective, bearing in mind that investors are the giant stick that we can use to beat companies around the head with when they do things that we don't like because we can dump their shares. All of a sudden, it kicked off a revolution, not only in ESG investing, but also in the growth of ethical capitalism. So there are a lot of different ways that, or there are a lot of different ways, there are a lot of different tools, and there are a lot of different levers that we can use to subtly encourage or outright force companies to do the right thing. And that's before we discuss the European Union's big green deal, which prioritizes ESG investing, but also prioritizes anything that is green. Great. I suppose um, in terms of that ESG first, I have actually read a number of books about that and that we're starting to see the rejection. And I think uh, BP was the example where you can't just change your logo to uh, some leaves and green to show that you've got a green policy anymore. You actually have to be authentic in your delivery for your shareholders and for your customers as well. Well, absolutely. I mean, so as I as I started coming out, basically, of System Integrator World and everything else, one of the, the first meetings that I actually had basically was with a particular energy company, a particularly giant energy company, who said, okay, so, you know, we see that the world is changing, and this is an oil and gas company. We see that the world is changing. We want to disrupt. And it's like, well, okay, you know, what do you want to disrupt? Do you want to disrupt yourselves, the market, what? And when you have a look at the oil and gas giants, they've loved the status quo because the world has lived on oil basically for decades now. It used to be the case basically that when oil prices fluctuated, the global economy was affected. You know, and Bloomberg about a year to two years ago basically said, "We have finally seen the decoupling of oil prices." from the global economy. In other words, basically, when oil prices go up and down, as they always do, they no longer have the same level of impact on global GDP growth or decline that they used to. And um, when you have a look at these giant oil and gas companies, they, they sat back, they sat back, they sat back, they sat back, and they waited until really they were their hand was forced. And again, it's almost the ideal example, basically, of um, the power of shareholders, investors. I remember sitting through lots of meetings at the London Stock Exchange, but also Stock and the Deutsche Börse, where investor after investor after investor just went dump oil and gas stocks. And investors were pulling out of oil and gas stocks like crazy, and they still are. You know, when you have a look at a lot of the sovereign wealth funds and sovereign pension funds that are worth trillions of dollars in some case, they dumped oil and gas like crazy. And that hurts basically the share price of companies like BP and Shell and Exxon and Chevron and all these other organizations. And they have to move. But while they're now starting to move, you know, BP are now investing in building hydrogen plants basically in Teesside. 
Um, there you've got renewable energy products, so they are starting to move in the right direction, which is good to see. So we still have to say it is good that they are moving. You know, you can keep beating these guys up, but frankly, it's good that they are actually moving and starting to change the status quo, albeit the fact that they had to be forced uh, a bit. But um, when you have a look at organizations like Chevron, I was having a conversation with the Chevron CEO a little while ago, um, because over in California, you see a huge number of blackouts uh, caused by faulty electrical infrastructure, because you know you have a an overhead power line that sparks, and then that sets off a Californian wildfire. And oil and gas companies now start seeing opportunities basically to move into things like you know graphene production um, and all kinds of different things. I suppose the good news is, basically, the oil and gas companies have finally got the message after being kicked up the rump, you know, time and time and time again. And they are actually now helping accelerate the shift from fossil fuel based sources to renewables. I mean, fossil fuels still represent a huge amount of their business and their profits and everything else, but they are actually starting to do something. Which then means that, you know, there is actually hope when we look at the future. And even when you have a look at things like carbon capture and storage solutions, you know, one of the biggest investors in the space at the minute is Shell. They've been repurposing scientists to try to create new catalysts and new compounds and chemicals that help us suck carbon dioxide out of the air faster than ever before. And the reason why, on the one hand, it's the right thing to do, but actually at a really fundamental level, there's money in it for them. One of the most exciting things for me, Matt, from what you said, is the fact that we can get some of these um, solar panels that work in cloudy weathers up to the northwest of England. I think that's that's, that's a giant leap forward. There's a, there's a little story, basically. Elon Musk basically came into the UK about sort of two, three years ago, basically, and um, he, he sat down basically with a bunch of reporters and everything else, and they said, "Look, you know, we know that you're you're trying to pedal solar panels, you know, because he, he owns Solar City." And um, they said, "Look, you know, I'm not being funny, but we fund, you know, but in Britain, in the UK, we fundamentally live in a country that is covered by constant cloud and rain. I mean, just look at this this summer that we've had." And um, they said, you know, you're never going to be able to sell solar panels into the UK because we just don't have the sun for it. And this was sort of before some of the, the, the developments that I mentioned earlier. And he turned around to them and said, well, you've got plants, haven't you? Don't trees grow, basically, in, in the UK? Don't they use sunlight, basically, to you know, produce their own sort of you know, nutrients and chemicals and all that kind of stuff? And this sort of puts it in, in, into quite a good perspective. Yeah, nature's been doing things really, really well for billions and billions of years. But finally, humanity is now starting to get to the point where we have sufficiently advanced technologies and tools to actually either emulate nature or even improve nature, which is why, you know, when you have a look at photosynthesis in plants, it's typically about 30% energy efficient. We now have the technologies to blow way past that. And then it comes down to a case of investing in those technologies, deploying those technologies at scale to start saving the planet. So hence the term, you know, people, planet and purpose. Um, well, yeah, that's, uh, I, I suppose the, um, you know, the, the thing that that whole message gives us is hope that our, our grandkids are going to have a future and that the technology is already there. We don't need to be sort of uh, pushing the boundaries uh, too much in terms of uh, new technologies because it, it's as you say it's already there and a lot of it is provided by nature which is fantastic which then sort of you know when you when you talk about grandkids that sort of brings us on to another little story if you'll humor me so the year 2028 basically is very significant to everyone on the planet for a reason that most people don't know by the year 2028 
most health tech organizations and biotech organizations believe that we will have sufficient enough healthcare breakthroughs that will allow us to add over a year's worth of life to people for every actual year that they've lived. So it's a a health tech term called uh, escape velocity. Which then brings us to this. So I, I did a, a, a keynote session basically at the uh, the London Science Museum, and uh, kind of started with this. I said, and it was on health, future healthcare. And I said, what if healthcare technologies add an extra thirty years to your life? Bearing in mind that I can already three D print a human heart. <laughs> yeah. So if you have a heart attack, do you want a new one? Uh, whole conversation for maybe another time. Um, if I could extend your life by another thirty years. What is, how does that impact you? It impacts basically your assets. It impacts how you save, how you invest. It in, impacts the wills that you write, the wealth management programs that you put in place, basically depending on your banks and all that kind of stuff. But from an environmental perspective, for the people who sort of go, well, you know what? I won't be alive in 2050 um, to see Miami and Florida sink and to see uh, you know London burn uh, as uh, as global warming melts the concrete of the buildings and all this kind of random stuff, um, you actually could be. So if we have the healthcare technologies that will let you live another 30 years, so this is sort of where the age of 125 becomes the new 60, do you suddenly care more about the environment? Because actually you're going to see some of these problems. You know, And even when we have a look at global sea level rises, we've got 470 cities with over a billion people that generally will be underwater by the year 2050. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if my diet of panda burgers will uh, will get me to an extra 30 years there, Matt. It contains all the right nutrients for you, which is something Nestle are actually doing, although they're doing it basically with 3D printed food, not panda burgers. Just to put that in there, don't want Nestle complaining. Yeah, I can't wait for the day I walk into uh, to McDonald's and see uh, yeah, the panda burgers on offer. I'll have a little smile there to myself. But um, I suppose just to, uh, I'm conscious of everybody's time, just, I suppose, uh, some some light-hearted questions. A couple of sort of warm-down questions um, to just uh, get a bit of further insight. I'm really interested to know, what is your favourite tech gadget as a futurist? Ooh, tech gadget. Actually, my favourite tech is actually no tech. Having a conversation with someone yesterday where I'd like to actually just go and sit in a desert <laughs> off-grid. But my, I suppose basically my, my favourite uh, tech gadget at the minute, to be honest, I have to be a smartphone. There was a Reddit conversation a little while ago, basically, where I said, how we do explain modern day technology to somebody from 100 years ago? And I said, with smartphones, in my hand, I hold all of the world's information. Yeah, As we start seeing brick and mortar retailers facing the retail apocalypse, as someone sort of said to me ages ago, how can brick and mortar retailers compete with a gadget that gives you access to the entire universe? Um, so I'd have to say smartphone. Yeah, yeah, no, no fair point, yeah. Um, in terms of, um, I, I suppose, a wrap-up question, I normally like to ask people just as a bit of banter about the uh, Premiership football. However, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask you about, are we going to see more technology um, and innovation in sports as well? We've seen, a, yeah. we've seen obviously, uh, VAR come into play the last couple of years. Is that going to continue to grow? 
or is it uh, is everyone getting a bit bored of that? No, so we are going to see a lot more technology coming into sport. So I do a lot of work basically with companies like Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, basically as well as Decathlon, as well as basically a lot of the broadcasters. So for example, we've got FIFA coming up next year. Um, so this is where increasingly we're looking at using what we call volumetric video. So we take video basically of the players as they're running around the pitch. We push it into virtual reality, and then you can watch a game in virtual reality. Now I know we started doing that with the Olympics, and we did it with the last World Cup, but the technology's really come on. So in FIFA's terms, basically what they want to do is they want to try to use virtual reality to decentralize and democratize access to football, simply because there has sort of been a, a sort of decline in viewership over the years. When we have a look at how we're actually training athletes, for example, or training athletes, but footballers as well, increasingly we're using artificial intelligence and machine vision to track basically their performance. So we're tracking them at the biomechanical uh, as well as form level. Uh, so uh, we also have artificial intelligences, for example, in esports, but also again within football with the likes of Manchester United that are actually helping them develop strategy. Uh, so I know a lot of people are probably going to say, well, they should probably fire the artificial intelligence, but sort of bringing this over to uh, esports, we've seen artificial intelligences beating hu- the best human gamers for quite a number of years now, you know, whether it's Go, whether it's Dota, whether it's StarCraft. And courtesy of organizations like Falcon AI, those artificial intelligences that thrashed human players are now helping those human players develop new strategies to get better. So It's actually something called the Centaur Principle, and this applies to the future of work as well because we have humans on the one side, we are very creative, slightly illogical, and we have artificial on the other side that has access to all the world's information and is logical. When you actually put humans together with artificial intelligences, we as humans learn in new ways. And then when we have a look at wearables, basically we're seeing wearables being used to track player data like crazy, whether it's cortisol levels and stress levels, whether it's hydration levels, oxygenation levels, lactic acid levels, and all this sort of stuff. And then even when we actually have a look at the use of virtual reality, we have virtual reality being used by Formula One. So you you drive around the circuit in virtual reality. It actually gives you a sense of the track and actually helps you retain, retain information 30% better. So Technology is now increasingly a human performance differentiator, both at the local grassroots level, but also the Olympic level. So much so that at the Olympic level, there is now a new term that's being coined called tech doping. People's performance is almost artificially enhanced by technology, whether it's things like the Razor swimsuits from Speedo at some of the Olympics, whether it's the nanotechnology running tracks that help people run 0.3 seconds faster in 100 meters. Sports and technology, you're going to have problems separating the two soon. Yeah, no, there's some, I, I can see it, you know, it's already coming. I think you can buy online sort of uh, sensors for, you you know, for a Sunday league match where you can see the velocity of the ball and uh, which feet you use the most in football. It's all going absolutely crazy. Thank you very much for your time today, Matt. That's been absolutely fascinating. Again, I think you've given us a bit of hope for uh, for the environment that uh, there's some great technologies out there. Steve, have you got any uh, comments uh, from that? No, just really good to hear the um, the positive story and yeah, that brighter future. I'll take that away from this conversation. So much appreciated, Matt. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of ASM Connected, the podcast from ASM Technologies with guest Matthew Griffin. 
If you want to find out more about ASM Technologies or about anything discussed in this podcast, visit asmtech.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now and never miss an update. Thanks for listening to ASM Connected.